I'm Kate Daniels. Being informed is critical, but taking action is even more critical. This is true for any time, but even more so now as we head toward an election. We have not just an opportunity, we have the responsibility to vote. To underscore this responsibility is our guest, Kenneth Davis. Kenneth is the New York Times bestselling author of America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About History. Kenneth is passionate in sharing this knowledge with youth in their classrooms and now virtually. Today, Kenneth brings us his latest book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Kenneth Davis, good morning. It is so wonderful to welcome you back, even though it's been a number of years. But welcome and thank you for another informative, excellent book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Uh, A fascinating book and uh, couldn't, in a way, be much more timely than it is coming out at this time. Well, thank you, Kate. It's a great pleasure to be back with you. And, you know, I've been writing about history for, it's hard for me to believe this, don't, don't know much about history, came out 30 years ago. It's been updated and revised since then. But I've always had the belief that history isn't this, just this dates and battles and speeches. It's the story of real people doing real things. And we need to understand those things because it shapes the present, certainly. And we can learn a lot from the past. Uh, I don't buy into this simplistic idea that history repeats itself. It certainly does replay in certain ways, but it's not like Groundhog Day. But more important, if we learn from the past, if we learn from the mistakes we made and from the things that we did right in the past, we're a lot better off. Unfortunately, we're not very good at history still. And that is one of the reasons your books are so interesting and fascinating. They're factual. You do it in such a storytelling way that it's, uh, we talk about fiction as page turners. Well, this, your books, uh, don't know much about history, the various ones and Strongman. These are books that are page turners because they really captivate us. And this is real life. It's absolutely true, and I always believe that that history is always a lot more interesting than fiction in many respects. I know we can you know turn to fiction uh, for lots of things, inspiration, imagination, but sometimes it's escape. Um, but if we want to learn what people really are capable of, both the best and the worst of people, we have to look at history. And as I said, we can learn from it. This story, Five Dictators, the Most Ruthless Men in the 20th Century, I think it's fair to say, uh, is a cautionary tale for our times. But unfortunately, a lot of people, they hear the names Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao. They're just those faces, uh, maybe in a textbook, maybe you've probably seen them, or an Andy Warhol piece of art in the case of Chairman Mao. But these were real men, and they did real things, and they did unspeakable things, and they were followed by real people. So it's really important for us to understand how such men come to power, how they are able to take their countries down such a dangerous and deadly path, and finally, what we can do if we care to make sure it doesn't happen again, that we protect democracy, which this book shows does not die in darkness. It often dies in broad daylight. And that is the thing that it is that kind of a cautionary tale, that it makes us aware. And I dare say 
currently we maybe have a heightened sense of awareness of that, but I don't want to be glib about that or take anything for granted. I think the stories here are such that we are to read them and think about them and really see their application. Uh, Absolutely. I want to be very clear from the outset here that this book is not about current politics in the United States of America, although I think it's very applicable to current politics in the United States of America. The, The book does not mention any of the current political leadership in the United States of America, but it's certainly written out of my sense of concern over a period of time that something's very wrong with democracy around the world and to a degree in the United States as well. There are real threats to democracy. You know, I was born in the post-World War II generation. I'm a baby, an aging baby boomer. We were the kids who had to duck and cover because we were afraid of the nuclear attack coming from the Soviet Union. So for much of my life, uh, that was the great fear that we were living with uh, of the Soviet Union. And then it disappeared suddenly, almost overnight. And the Soviet Union fell, the Berlin Wall crumbled, apartheid ended in South Africa. We thought this was a new era of democracy and more human rights and progress and freedom around the world. And then how quickly it was reversed. So that for the past 15 years, we've seen the real rise of authoritarians, strong men, if you will, around the world. And it's a real cautionary tale for how quickly democracy can disappear. We take it for granted, and we take it for granted at our peril because it's a lot harder to get it back than it is to protect it. Yes, indeed. And the thing is, it it is fragile. I think we have been using that term a little more so recently in terms of democracy being just that. And in reading these stories, but then also seeing the other leaders around the world that fall into this kind of category even still, remind us how each of us has that responsibility to be totally aware, informed, and involved. Yes, and it's more important now than ever because we do live in this age of this information swamp that we're in. So it's very important for people to understand how such men do come to power. And I'll use the the examples of Mussolini and Hitler first. They are the first two stories that I relate in uh, Strongman. Um, A lot of people think, I think to this day, these men came to power at the head of armies, riding tanks in and, and seizing power in a coup or a revolution. They were not. They were both men who were part of, came to power in a constitutional democracy. Italy had a constitutional monarchy that had uh, been around since the 1860s. It was not very uh, effective. It wasn't well-rooted. They were in a catastrophe uh, of post-World War I times when the country was uh, very poor. They'd suffered grievously in the war. Even though they were on the winning side, they hadn't really reaped any of the benefits of the victory. And so Mussolini was an elected member of the Italian parliament. He's invited by the king because there is this moment of crisis that he sort of creates with a threat to march on Rome. And the king invites him to become the prime minister. Uh, There were men in Italy who thought that he was a kind of preening, uh, uh, ambitious 
ego, but easy to control. And in that, they were tragically mistaken, because in a very short space of time, he was able to take his fascist party from a minor party in a ruling coalition into a single party. The word totalitarian was invented for Mussolini. He calls for an election shortly after he's made prime minister. It's an election riddled by fraud and corruption. A senator rises in the Italian Senate and talks about the fraud and corruption. He disappears the next day, kidnapped, found murdered a few weeks later. So using both the powers of government and then using violence and intimidation, corruption, fraud, Mussolini is quickly able to take over the Italian government and turn it into a one-party state where loyalty was demanded. You couldn't be in the press if you didn't swear loyalty to the state and the party. You couldn't teach in university without swearing loyalty to Mussolini and the party. There were 1,200 university professors who signed that loyalty oath. Twelve did not. So think about that. That's when we think about the difference between collaborators, bystanders, and upstanders. There were very few upstanders in Italy who were willing to fight back against Mussolini. And those who did eventually were, some were arrested uh, and deported. Uh, Eventually, of course, when Mussolini follows Hitler's lead in terms of Jews, Italian Jews were rounded up and sent to the camps as well. So it's a very, very dangerous road we go down when this powerful leader, a nationalist proclaiming that he's interested in giving power to the people, stands up and says, I'll fix this crisis for you. And we're going, uh, we need law and order and we need to end corruption. And it's all because of these foreigners or these bankers or these communists or these socialists or these Jews who are causing the problems. These are all the warning signs of a strong man. And it's stunning how quickly it happened in Italy and Germany. Yes, in a very short time. And then to really erupt into it being a world war. That's right. Of course, uh, Mussolini precedes Hitler. Hitler watches what Mussolini does, emulates some of his tactics and techniques, um, some less successfully, but he still ends up, of course, in the same position, in a democratic government with a constitution, the uh, Constitution of Germany written 100 years ago after World War I was a model of uh, progressive ideals. Women were given the vote in Germany before they got the vote in the United States or Great Britain. Uh, there was protections of religious freedom. There were protections of workers, the right to unionize, an eight-hour workday. Uh, So uh, Germany was ahead of the curve in 1919, but once Hitler comes into power, invited in again to take the reins of power as chancellor, equivalent to the prime minister, he quickly moved to take a crisis, the burning of the parliament building in Berlin, to uh, have most of the rule of law overturned practically overnight. And then a month later, he's given near dictatorial powers And when the president of Germany dies later that year, Hitler declares himself Fuhrer and outlaws the presidency, ends the presidency. So just really in a matter of months, we went from a modern democratic constitutional government to one of the most murderous dictators in history, of course. And 
Indeed, he and Mussolini then combine and take the world to war in 1939, fighting against one of the other strong men. <laughs> I single out here Joseph Stalin, of course, of the Soviet Union. So here is this history, these important stories for us all compacted into strong man for us to read. And, you know, there's a, a certain fascination because it's because it's so incredible that it happened just as quickly as it did and is kind of a warning to anyone to be aware things can really move quickly. They can. And of course, uh, we do take certain things for granted. And we take for granted because we've lived in this uh, constitutionally protected democracy for so long that it will be forever. Unfortunately, is not. That uh, Abraham Lincoln warned about that in uh, 1863 in the Gettysburg Address about the cost of fighting to protect this government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that it could perish from this earth. So this is a, a warning that's echoed throughout history. And in fact, if we go back to the beginning of democracy, and I trace very briefly an overview of the history of democracy in the book, if we go back to ancient Greece, where the word comes from, it means the power of the people. By the way, Democracy is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. It was a, a word that uh, the, the founding fathers didn't really have that much use for. But if you go back and look at ancient Greece, Plato at the time looks around, looks at this democracy, looks at forms of government, and he says – Democracy will eventually end in tyranny. He doesn't believe it's the best form of government, nor does he believe it's going to last. So that's a warning that goes back for more than 2,000 years, that democracy can lead to tyranny. And in all of the cases I present here, in fact, it does. Um, the founding fathers were aware of this. They knew about the Roman Republic. Republic is also a word like democracy that means of the people, the power of the people different concepts, but essentially the same in their, uh, the heart of what they mean. The founders of the United States looked at the Roman Republic, which they admired a great deal. They thought it was the pinnacle of Republican rule in history, but they knew that along would come a Julius Caesar to take it down if allowed. And Julius Caesar was also given his powers by the Senate the men who were elected of the people in the Republic. He increasingly takes those powers, uh, creates, of course, the cult of personality, which is something else I discuss in this book with these five men. They all create themselves as the state. They make themselves the state. They all practically deify themselves. Julius Caesar had done exactly the same thing, and the Senate got nervous about Julius Caesar, when he put his face on the money, he put his face on the coins. Before that, no human, uh, no living person, certainly, and no human had been on the coins. Only gods could be on the coins. So that was a real turning point, and that's when the Senate decided they better really do something about this dictator that they had put in place, made dictator for 10 years and then dictator for life. Um, and that's uh, one more cautionary tale from history about how a strong man comes along. And uh, the founders, the men who created the Constitution, understood this. 
they were afraid of the power of the presidency. That's why they put in the system of checks and balances that we talk about. They believed in the balance of power. They thought that if they were not careful, they were going to be creating an elected monarch. And it's a tension that's existed throughout our history of how much power the president should have, what the limits should be, and what the checks on that power should be. And of course, we're seeing that play out right now in this country to a degree. Is Congress fulfilling its uh, role as check on presidential power? Are the courts being the check on presidential power that were designed into the Constitution? So these are really important issues that we can look at the past and say, what should we learn and how should we look at what's going on around us right now? Which leads us to right now when we have a, an election just uh, weeks away and uh, still some contention about that. I don't think there's been talk about delaying that, but uh, just the challenges to voting by mail and the uh, polling sites and registration, all of that, it seems this time, correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, this time just seems to be just so much more volume to it. Uh, Absolutely. And again, uh, this is not written as a partisan book, or certainly it's not written as an attack on any politician. As I mentioned, I, I do not name any current American politicians in this book. But if you look at this playbook of what a strong man or someone who aspires to be a strong man does, the assault on the election process the assault on the norms of the institution is part of the techniques that, that these men used in the past. And I was quite astonished a few weeks ago after the first debate, the New York Times headline said, never before has a president questioned the legitimacy of the election, nor called into question whether he would accept the results. This is uh, unprecedented in our history, although in 1800, it's about the only other 200 years ago we had a contested election under the original form of how the president was elected. Uh, there was a tie between uh, two candidates, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And for a long time, there were real concerns and there, were, there was talk about armies coming out into the street. This was uh, one of the great crises in the past that resolved peacefully after quite a while, of course, and the House of Representatives actually finally makes the determination that it is Thomas Jefferson who will become the president. His rival, Aaron Burr, becomes his vice president. This, of course, um, uh, great fodder for uh, a Broadway hit these days uh, called Hamilton. And that was the great crisis early in our history, the closest we've come to an outright conflict over uh, an election. But in 200 years since then, we've had nothing like that. Even in close elections, uh, we had the peaceful transfer of power. My goodness, the year 2000 with the fighting over the ballot in Florida, it was long and it was contested and it was hot. But at the end, Vice President Gore said, this is what the law has said. The people have spoken and he concedes. The prospect of an American political figure Contesting to the end the outcome of elections is something we've never seen like this. And it is a warning sign, as far as I'm concerned, that we should look to what these men have done in the past as an indicator of what can happen. And 
I place myself in the same generation as you because I am a, a baby boomer. And I look at the history as you kind of gave an over a great overview, Kenneth, of, uh, you know, just the things that had happened um, from the 60s to uh, well into the 90s. And beginning for me, just kind of trusting that things would be fine. You know, there will only be these intelligent people who want the best for everyone because it serves everyone that they'll do this. But in the last uh, 15 or so years, I've decided, no, it's not okay to do that. I need to be much more aware and involved. And that is, I would think, part of what we need to be doing. Absolutely. We have, it's not anything new. We are not very good about civic engagement in this country. Uh, Throughout our history, you know, presidential elections, if we get to 60% voter turnout, we think that's a pretty good year. Around 50% is not unusual. In fact, it's typical. In the midterm elections, it falls down to 40%. So we don't participate very actively in the most fundamental piece of democratic engagement, which is going to vote. Um, That's uh, partly the fact that we take it for granted, partly a a reflection, I believe, of a long-term ignorance of history in our country. It's one of the reasons I wrote Don't Know Much About History 30 years ago, and this was a problem then. We talked about uh, what our 17-year-olds don't know back in 1987. I always argued that 17-year-olds didn't know much about history, but neither did their parents or their grandparents. So we have a problem with the way we teach history, and we have a problem with the fact that we don't spend a lot of time teaching history. That's a much bigger issue. And this is not a, a, you know, a whole thing about what's wrong with the educational system. We could spend a, an hour on that, I'm sure. But we are not a nation of history lovers or scholars. And that's not only sad, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because the history of this country says that we've only won the rights that we have at great cost. People have marched, fought, died, bled, sweated, and and certainly cried uh, to get the vote. You know, when you think about it, every step along the way, people without a vote had to use their voice to get the vote. First African-American men after the Civil War, 100 years ago, only 100 years ago, women gaining the right that they should have had from the beginning to vote. Uh, The changes to the Constitution, many of them, 27 amendments, many of them reflect changes in how we participate in this country. I was fortunate in 1972 the law changed, the Constitution changed, and I was able to vote at 18. I voted in every election since then. Uh, A district of Columbia did not used to have any electors in the electoral, so-called electoral college uh, until the 1960s. Uh, Until early 20th century, senators were elected by the state legislatures, not by direct vote. So every step along the way has been a struggle to open the process up to more votes, and it's always been a struggle, and that struggle does have tremendous sacrifice. I am reminded all the time when I speak of this of the late, great John Lewis. He was 18 years old when he started his march across 
that bridge and started to march for civil rights. As an 18-year-old black man, he could not vote. He couldn't vote because he was 18, but he also couldn't vote in many places because he was a black man. So that struggle has been long, and whether it's abolition or suffrage or emancipation or any of the great civil rights and human rights progress that's been made at this, in this country has come at great cost. And if we don't teach that and people don't understand that, and especially young people don't understand that, they don't realize, I think, how important it is to keep your voice alive, first by voting, but also with all the other ways we can express our voice. And that is the only way that we can defend democracy if we think it's worth saving. And I trust we do think that it is worth, very worth saving. On this note, where we can also be involved and learn more and do this uh, in a unified way, and I think, you know, during this pandemic time, this is one way that we've been using the Internet a lot more and connecting for these webinars and Zoom meetings. You have a student town hall coming up. That's correct. On on Tuesday, October 20th, I will do a student town hall with the National Council for the Social Studies. That's an organization that uh, deals with uh, teachers of history, civics. Uh, and these people are dedicated and passionate about getting students interested and involved in this. And uh, unfortunately, they're up against uh, <laughs> a lot of resistance as well. But um, we will do this as a town hall. And students are very, very welcome around the country. You can go to the website of the National Council for the Social Studies and register for this student town hall. And this is a chance where I'm not going to give a lecture about civics to, to the students. We want to listen to them. What are their concerns? You know, whether it's right now climate change or gun safety or Black Lives Matter, young people are leading the way in many of these. I mean, my goodness, this 16-year-old girl from Sweden has taken the world by storm over this climate strike. It's extraordinary what the voice of one young person can mean. I mentioned John Lewis, of course, uh, another uh, great symbol of, of what we can do, even if we have no vote. So this is a chance for, for young people to, uh, to, to speak and speak out because the future is theirs. Uh, I think there are, you know, we'll talk about the issues, but we'll also talk about this, this question of how do I participate? How do I make my voice heard? And uh, it's a really important question, and I urge parents and teachers to find out more about it if they're listening, and uh, students can certainly join the conversation on Tuesday the 20th through the National Council for Social Studies, uh, their student town hall. It's also called NCSS. Wonderful. I think that's uh, really a, a great way for us to connect together in whatever kind of units and do this together and learn and really become uh, fired up and uh, make our voices heard. So that's a great thing that really just dovetails so wonderfully with what we're talking about with this new book that you've written, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Kenneth, uh, you are just uh, such a gift and an inspiration to all of us. And I'm so grateful for this work that you do. 
Oh, you're very kind. Thank you so much for those generous words. I am, uh, I guess I'm passionate about it. You know, I really believe in these ideals that we grew up with, and, and I believe in this uh, American ideal. I think it is exceptional, not in the way people often talk about uh, when they use that phrase, but um, the country has been a model and a symbol for uh, hundreds of years to people around the world. One of the real problems, I think, right now is that uh, we've lost that sense of leadership and uh, that sense of idealism about what this country represents. And I think it's very important to get back to that very fundamental sense. And that doesn't um, you know, mean that we've done things perfectly in the past. Far from it. I've made my career talking about what we've done wrong. But it is really important that we hold to these self-evident truths. And uh, I'm a great believer with Lincoln that we are the last best hope on earth, um, and we should start acting that way. Absolutely. Great words to wrap up with. And once again, my deepest gratitude to you, Kenneth Davis, for the work that you do and for spending time with us this morning. Thank you. Anyone who wants to learn more about this book or my work can go to don'tknowmuch.com. That's my website. I have information there right now, for instance, about the student town hall. And uh, you can learn more about my work and me at don'tknowmuch.com. 